At Design Centre Chelsea Harbour, it's never been easier to discover what's happening in the world of design. Head to SW10 and you can browse 600 of the world's most prestigious brands in 120 showrooms, all under one roof. And it's not just for the professionals. If you need help and advice, there's a concierge desk and even a personal shopping service. It's all about, you know, love and skill and collaboration. And it's about a team of people you know, working together um, meticulously to create something that they are really proud of. And very often our makers are quite surprised that they have been able to produce the thing that we've asked them to produce because they never thought they could do it at the beginning. Hello, I'm Carol Annett from Country and Townhouse magazine. Welcome to the House Guest podcast, where I chat with experts from the world of interior design and decoration, the people behind the houses and hotels you see in glossy magazines like ours. Some of the names will be familiar and others may be less so, but I'm sure you'll recognise the hotels and restaurants they've designed. And if you're in the middle of your own building project or restyle, maybe you'll pick up some tips for yourself. If you listen on the Entail app, there's more information and images on the projects and places mentioned. Porta Romana began life in 1988 in a tiny London workshop creating beautiful sculpted and cast metal and blown glass pieces to be loved. Evolved over 31 years into a global brand, it's now a critical ingredient in houses, yachts and movie sets around the world. I'm delighted to say that I'm sitting with Andrew Hills, who started Portramana with your wife Sarah all those years ago. We did, and it does seem like a long time ago uh, <laughs> that uh, Sarah and I were working uh, in our respective uh, jobs in London. In what 19... were you doing? In 1987, Sarah was working at the BBC uh, in religious broadcasting. Crikey. <laughs> on the Everyman programme. Okay. Uh, and I had qualified as a barrister, uh, and I was working in the city, and we were both in our mid-twenties, and we were both at the point where we knew we would either settle into those worlds and, and become career people um, in the city uh, and have more conventional lives, or we could choose to do something different. Um, and we were just good friends at the time, and we went on an amazing trip together to Moscow and St. Petersburg, in, probably in 1986, actually, when those cities were behind the Iron Curtain, and it was a really different sort of uh, experience going to a communist state with all the sort of rigours and restrictions that they had at that time. But it really sparked our sense of adventure. Uh, and probably about six months later, I have to kind of throw in that I had fallen in love with Sarah and it hadn't <laughs> been reciprocated at that Noted. point. Noted. <laughs> uh, so going on holiday with her was, was, was just a dream for me. Um, and about six months later, she rang me at work and said, how do you fancy stopping what we're doing and going to live in a foreign city somewhere and just taking a break from this world and we talked it through and she had already identified Florence as the city that she would like to go to and in my lovelorn state I, I didn't have there was only one answer I could give her which was yeah we're going so so the following after a little bit of Italian evening classes and saving some money uh, for the trip in, in April of 1987 we literally put all our possessions into the car, 
we drove down to uh, Florence over the course of three or four days. We arrived in the city. We had no connections because we had no internet. We had no mobile phones. Uh, our evening classes hadn't been that effective, so we didn't really have a lot of Italian either. Uh, and we put up a, a, a two-man tent in the campsite that overlooks the city of Florence, and we set about getting work. And um, we had some hilarious uh, interviews and attempts at work, and eventually we settled into our kind of respective jobs. And we just had the most fantastic year living in that beautiful city. Um, how long were you in the tent for? Because I have to say, however much I'm in love with a man living in the tent, Tent the tent turned things around, so it definitely, you know, played its 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 role in the in the, in saga. the romance. But we were in the tent probably for about two weeks. Okay. Um, and I was first to get a job and get some money that enabled us to rent a beautiful apartment. I mean, a lovely little place in the sort of south part of the city, um, and we had our own little garden outside and we loved that. I mean, it was very modest, but we loved that place. Uh, and friends would kind of come and go. But the really kind of inspiring thing about it is that the street we were in was one of those, in those days, it was one of those streets that was full of little workshops uh, where the Italians used to do their wood carving and their gilding and their glazes. and and. You know, we would walk up and down our street every day, obviously, and peer into these little places. Um, and we were totally carried away by all that creativity going on around us and all the sort of excitement. And we were talking about Jocasta Innes earlier on. And in those days, you know, those kind of paint finishes were just becoming a fashion. So after our year in Florence, we just thought, well, why don't we go back to England and try something like this ourselves? Why don't we try and set up our own little workshop where we can do, you know, painting and gilding and, and, and make things look beautiful and, and, and sell them. And with Sarah's skills as an artist, that's exactly what we did. Um, and we came back, we, we had no money. I mean, we, had, we were living off what we had earned whilst we were in Florence. But in those days, you could get an allowance from the government of £40 a week each to start an enterprise. This was under Margaret Thatcher. And that was hugely valuable to us. So... So for the next year, we had our income of £40 a week each from, from the government, and we began buying old bits of furniture, decorating them, selling them, and beginning to sort of, you know, make some turnover. And we carried on like that, you know, in this kind of lifestyle, hobby, craft business for a few years, until... Until it came to making the more critical decisions in our lives, which were about getting married and all our friends around us who were developing their careers were buying curtains and sofas and cars, and we weren't. Um, so we had to slightly modify our business model, and we began uh, working on a collection of lighting. Um, and why lighting? Just because it was... It had caught your attention, that's what you'd fallen in love with in Florence? or I think we, we were looking for, having, having been buying and selling antique furniture, you know, individual bits of antique furniture that we were repainting, it was a hopeless business model. And we were looking for a product that we could, that could come, not on a production line, but could be produced in a volume. And we could still apply our beautiful you know, hand-painted finishes to and we found a, a maker of turned wooden lamp bases. 
I don't remember how we found him, but it just seemed like a great medium for putting lovely finishes on. Um, and so we began doing that. We were able to then photograph those and create a catalogue and, and then get customers who could reorder things and we could add in lampshades. And it began to be more of a product range that was, and we could go to top drawer, you know, and take an exhibition stand and begin to sell things and have a price list and all, all the so things that you need. Business. So it began to be a proper business. Um, and I don't know, that was probably in 19, you know, early 1990s. Um, and we found that together we were good at it because we had a shared aesthetic, or at least we had a complementary aesthetic. Um, and we grew in confidence. And as we grew in confidence, we moved on from just painting turned wooden lamp bases into meeting other artists, brilliant artists, all, all in the UK, but brilliant glass makers and, and metal workers and ceramicists and sculptors. And we began to meet these people who had such talents and skills but who weren't really accessing the market. We were able to give these makers our ideas and our designs and get them made and, and, and work as hard as we could to get you know, low, low cost items beautifully made. And we began to sell those pieces as well. But doing the finishing was always our strength and, and whatever we had made elsewhere, we tended to finish ourselves. And so we grew in confidence and the and the level the price level at which we felt comfortable selling things to our customers gradually increased our customers had more confidence in us as a source of beautiful things and and it just worked really well there was a natural organic flow to it and it grew is so impressive about Porta Romana is that everything is so tasteful, really beautifully tasteful. You never, you, you never go into a, a showroom or see one of your pieces that you think, oh, hang on, that's a bit off. They are all so elegant and, and beautiful. And having been to the workshop in Farnham, you, you, you imagine that it's, um, you know, it's kind of a built you know it's like a production line but, yeah. but literally there are people there with paintbrushes yes. putting pieces of gilt or you know with their hands covered in plaster or paint or whatever and it's and it's all happening in front of your eyes yes which I you know which I love it's just fantastic to see it is fantastic and I think in creative terms um, it always surprises people when they come to the workshop and see what goes into you know the making of their pieces um, somehow people imagine that that these beautifully finished items as you say kind of come off a production line um, but it's all about you know love and skill and collaboration and it's about a team of people you know working together um, meticulously to create something that they are really proud of um, and it's a, it's, it can be a hard and painful process and it's in our, it's very much part of what Sarah and I have always wanted to do to try and push our teams to, to make something exceptional because there's lots of people, lots of companies doing, you know, mediocre run of the mill things and we want to push and push and push 
uh, until we get something that has never been made before. Uh, and very often our makers are quite surprised that they have been able to produce the thing that we've asked them to produce because they never thought they could do it at the beginning. Mm. And it's only by endlessly um, persevering uh, and pressing and cajoling and begging and pleading and paying or whatever it takes uh, <laughs> that sometimes you can you know, get the result that you're after. Yeah. But it's a, it's a massive team effort. And where, does it, where do you start with a design? Where does your aesthetic come from when you think, okay, I, I, I've, we, I want to add this light or I've found, I've found this shape which I love and we're going to make it into something. What, how does the design process work? Oddly enough, very often we'll start with something that comes from, you know, a seed pod or a shell or something found that, you know, has been given to us uh, in the natural world. And you can't beat that. It is the, you know, it is the best source of uh, inspiration and design. Um, if you examine, you know, the little seed pod on those, you know, uh, plane trees outside, the detailing and, and the pattern and the and the texture and the shape, you know, they are always invariably extraordinary designs in the terms that we would see them. So, you know, we were, last year for our 30th anniversary, we did this fantastic collaboration with the Royal Academy because it was their 250th anniversary. And we designed, or Sarah designed, um, a, a, a series of light fittings that now hang in the, uh, in the shore staircase at the Royal Academy. And that was a donation from us to them, and it was a wonderful collaboration. And that, that chandelier um, is called the Urchin Chandelier. Um, it didn't actually come from a sea urchin. We were walking along Sloan Street uh, in the autumn <laughs> and Sarah picked up this little seed pod uh, that had fallen off a tree uh, and examined it and said, you know, what a wonderful light fitting that would make. And I said to her, that's ridiculous. That's far too complicated. You know, I can't see how that is going to be. And amazingly, because I said earlier, it can be an incredibly painful process. Within about three weeks we had a kind of metal, metalwork reproduction of that little seed pod uh, that was then assembled. And in fact, there's a video of how it's all made uh, on our Instagram and on our website. And it is fascinating uh, to see it. But that, that beautiful little seed pod that was so complicated and so, and so kind of at first Im impossible as a challenge turned into this fantastic... Um, urchin chandelier and was something that was given to us from the natural world and we have you know we have a lamp called the baobab lamp and that came from a seed pod that we found on a beach in the west indies and it's exactly the same you know kind of proportion and and texture and 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 modeling as the original it's just blown up to be a, a lamp base but sometimes you know you'll find a piece of metal on the floor of a metal workers workshop and that will have a texture in it that you just think is is absolutely right you know to be made into a table um, sometimes you'll just be playing on a piece of paper and just a shape will come sometimes you'll see something across a room and and you imagine it to be something that it isn't but the picture that you've now got in your head of what it could be is good enough to draw out and can become an object 
Um, and the great thing about lighting is that you know a table lamp is a fantastic medium for a piece of sculpture. I mean, anything that you think of in terms of a sculptural form, it can be made into a table lamp. Now that you've been going for 30 years, tell us more about the challenges of evolving a business and, and staying on top of the game. It's a, it's a completely different landscape uh, now in 2019 from the environment in which we launched in 1988 when it was enough just to make beautiful things uh, and to try to, to put things in front of your customers that they would love and couldn't resist. Um, nowadays, for all the right reasons, we feel there has to be much more of a sense of purpose um, about what we do in business. Um, and if you look around, you know, the shops are pretty empty at the moment, the high street is changing. Uh, I have children in their early 20s who literally don't want to buy anything anymore. They won't buy clothes, they won't buy products because they are, they're tired of the throwaway um, uh, culture. The idea of buying things in China that you use for a year and throw away uh, has gone. We have to think about what, what our contribution can be towards this, 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 this new zeitgeist, which is to respect the world that we live in, to respect our environment, and to use all our resources in a much more responsible way. And Sarah always reminds me of this quotation from uh, Victor Paparek, there are professions more harmful than design, uh, but only a very few. <laughs> so we are, we're trying to make things, but it's not good enough just to put you know, a lot of product in front of uh, consumers anymore. We have to think about our products being products not just for life, but maybe for, you know, for several generations. Uh, we have to think about the materials that are going to go into a new piece, um, and we have to use those materials in a really responsible way. We have to have smaller collections of really, really special things, and for a, for a, for a new piece to be viable in a new collection, it has to be good enough because you can't just have the shotgun approach to you know, product launches anymore. Um, we, we want to feel that we can justify putting something that has been responsibly made that will, that will last forever um, and that will be loved forever you know, in front of our consumers now. Um, we want to, we are launching a refurbishment and repair service. We've, we've always thought that the designs that we've made are designs that people should love for life. Um, and it's amazing when people bring things back because maybe the lamp holder has, has broken or something has gone wrong. And if we can put that item through our workshop after it's been in the consumer's house for maybe 10 or 15 years, it doesn't take much to make that, to restore that piece to the condition that it was in when we first sold it. It doesn't cost too much, it doesn't take too much resource, but it can give that piece a whole new lease of life. So we're launching a repair and refurbishment service with a view to, 
to trying to sustain the life of all the things that we have made. Um, we are getting to the point where by 2080 um, there will be more metal reserves above the ground than there are in the ground. You know, and these statistics are really are really shocking. Yeah. Um, so I think having these responsibilities um, for working in a sustainable way is a big challenge at the moment, and and it's a continuation of how we would like to think that we you know kind of always uh, worked. But I think. Other things like we've just had the Extinction Rebellion marches, we've just had a visit from uh, Greta Thunberg, and we all got to be much more conscious about, you know, tackling waste, tackling paper use, how we package things, um, how we transport things, um, no single-use plastics, and we have to we have to work with our supply chain to make sure, or to you know, to collaborate with them to make sure that they're thinking the same way too. So these are some of the challenges, um, and, and they're exciting for us, and they're something that, as a team, we can you know, really embrace. And you have a charitable side to the business as well. Tell us about that. Well, we, we don't do anything you know, fantastic, but we have got, um, we've got a team of over 100 people, and we know that when that team works together and they're inspired and excited about a project, they can do incredible things. Um, and every year, Porta Romana has this amazing sale at its head office, uh, where we sell some of the kind of the seconds and the prototypes and the, and the returns. And and can I just say, if you want to see interior designers behaving badly, that is the place to go. It's, <laughs> it's like supermarket sweep on steroids. <laughs> it is. It is a phenomenal uh, event, and the thing that 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 one of the things that I think is most phenomenal about it is that on those two days, our entire team abandon their normal roles, whether they be you know working in the sales office or the design office or the workshop or the assembly or the dispatch department. They abandon those roles and they help out together as a team to run this ex incredible event. And it's very, very well run. It's very well organised. It's beautifully organised. It's really efficiently right. We have to process a, a huge amount of business in a very short space of time. And, and it's probably the most exciting two days of our year um, just because the energy of seeing that team work together is, is extraordinary. So, so we decided that we wanted to try and harness that for other, you know, purposes as well. So over the years, yeah, we have had our team involved in various, you know, kind of charitable um, events. And for a few years, we supported um, a kind of respite care home in Guildford called Cherry Trees. And I think pretty much our team went through and redecorated, repainted and refurbished that whole sort of uh, operation and the, and the, and got involved with these highly autistic kids that, that, that use their space and and loved it um, and at the moment we've been putting our energies into building this school in the Western Cape in South Africa it's for young kids um, who can be vulnerable you know in the hours uh, between regular school time finishing and kind of going to bed at night and, and the school that, that, that we have helped build um, gives them sort of special teaching assistance in those hours, keeps them out of trouble, 
and, and, and helps educate them you know, to a higher level than they would normally uh, be able to expect. And we have a team going out there to, to help finish the building of that uh, school and probably, no doubt, help decorate it because you know, anything that isn't sort of on the move gets painted if the Porter and Mark <laughs> team <laughs> are involved. Um, so t- tell me how you, your worries about the business or how you, or anything that's particularly f- challenging at the moment. Well, we've talked about the you know, environment and sustainability, and I think one thing right now that seems to be on everybody's mind is the, the Brexit issue. Um, and just putting that in context, we had a really interesting weekend last weekend. Uh, we went to Beirut and we toured around Lebanon, principally looking at uh, wineries, in fact. Um, And Lebanon is a small country the size of Wales with a small population, Um, but it is bordered to the south by Israel, uh, and then Syria, and then Iraq, and Jordan, and Turkey. They have had to deal since the 1970s with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, with the Palestinian occupation, uh, with the conflict between Muslims and, and Christians, with Hezbollah, with Islamic Jihad, with the Syrian conflict, with the refugee crisis, with their, with their civil war. And we were at a winery and they were telling us about how, about how they have to just focus on the things that matter to them. They are working in a constantly changing climate and every year they focus on tending to their grapes bringing in their harvest and making delicious wine. And in some years, they have, the winery is probably about 30 miles away from the vineyard. Uh, so when they pick the grapes, they have to transport them to the winery. And in some years, they have done that under machine gun fire. But every year since 1975, when the conflict began, they have managed to deliver a crop of grapes and make fantastic wines. And I think when we think about Brexit, we kind of exaggerate what the challenge is. We live in a very stable environment, uh, relatively. Uh, And I just found it was a really telling lesson that that probably all we need to do is concentrate on tending our vines, uh, bringing in our harvest and making delicious wines. what you're most proud of I think I think honestly if I if I look back at, at what Sarah and I have done over the years we we always have to pinch ourselves to uh, to believe that this has happened and that Porta Romana this tiny little you know sort of workshop that we started in the Wandsworth uh, has become uh, what it has become um, so we've been incredibly lucky and we are incredibly thankful for, for all of that. Um, but maybe what I'm most proud of is the team that we have had over the course of that, uh, you know, kind of development that have made that happen. And it, and it always amazes me how much people will pull together, how much they will give um, when they're in the right mood, because they have to be in the right mood, 
but it is extraordinary what a well-motivated and well-managed team can manage uh, when they're on fire and excited about something. And, and, and what, what we have done at Portramana is amazing. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. And talking about sustainability and investment and pieces to love, I was racking my brain for my, well, it was my daughter who's now 27, racking my brain of what to give her that she would have forever and would enjoy looking at every day. So I gave her for her birthday a Porta Romana lamp. So oh. thank you very much. Oh, which one did you give her? <laughs> it's a glass one and it's got the the um, big blobs. Oh, the like blob. squashed yes. balloons. Yes, oh, that is a belter. What's it called? I don't it's know. called the blob lamp. The blob lamp. <laughs> it's obviously called the blob lamp. Um, and we went for pale blue blobs. Right. It's very pretty. Well, she's a very, very lucky girl. She's blinking lucky. <laughs> and was she very grateful? Yeah, she loves it. So okay. she should. Oh, thanks, Andrew. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to House Guests from Country and Townhouse magazine with me, Carol Annett. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on iTunes or Entail, where you can also find images, links and notes to enhance each episode. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Carol W. Annett. And keep up to date on all the podcast news and show notes online at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash podcast. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe.